0: Uh, Two weeks ago, I used the um, overall metaphor of the GPS lady in your phone, you know, that one who talks to you and tells you street by street where to go, which is sometimes kind of maddening, unless you had a chance to look at the overall map first. I always like to do that, you know, call that thing up, look at the map, kind of know, you know, generally where I'm going. And then doing the street by street thing isn't quite so scary because I think, okay, she's still going according to you know, that that overall shape in my head. And that's it. We're looking for specific directions in life, but God doesn't give us anything other than the step-by-step directions like the GPS lady. But what he does also give is the overall shape of the journey. And we talked about that being analogous to the rite of passage, to the hero's journey. It's the shape of Jesus' life. He was talking about people wanting a sign. He said, you're not going to get a sign except the sign of Jonah, the the descent and then the ascent. So we know the general shape, which then helps as life presents the step-by-step choices. And even if things aren't going to the way that we thought, we can still refer back to the shape of the journey. It's important because we as human fearful creatures are looking for certainty. God doesn't give us certainty. He gives us the ability to trust that's a completely different thing. If we can develop the trust, then the uncertainties of life become an adventure, become something that's interesting. Think about life if you had it all figured out. How fun would that be? You know, How many of you still want to play tic-tac-toe for crying out loud? You figured that one out 40 years ago. It's no fun anymore. If we could ever figure out life, there'd be no fun anymore. We wouldn't want to live anymore. There'd be no need to live anymore. But we also don't want to be so fearful of every twist and turn that we can enjoy the ride. The shape of the journey gives us that ability to do just that. And then last week, dealing with sort of this notion of an evolution of our perception of God's presence in that journey through scripture. And we went, those of you who are here from Genesis to Revelation, in 40 minutes. I think it's a record. It was cool. And just went through and looked at how God's presence has been depicted from the beginning to the end of Scripture. How God's presence was this scary, wild, uncontrollable natural force up on the mountain with the thunder and the lightning. You know, in nature, something that was wild and out there that the people feared, but they couldn't really connect to. And then under Moses, the people of Israel discovered that God appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he was still this wild force out there. But now he was leading them like a shepherd and guiding them someplace that they needed to go. A little bit more comforting. And then as they set up the tent of meeting in their camps as this nomadic people is traveling, the pillar of cloud would come and stand at the entrance of the tent and talk to Moses, but it wouldn't go in. So now... This presence is connecting, at least with our leadership. It's here, we can see it. It's part of our camp, but it's still not going inside. And then Moses finishes the tabernacle. The spirit, the Shekinah glory, this cloud fills the tabernacle, fills the tent of meeting. Several hundred years later, when Solomon builds the first temple, again, the presence descends and fills the temple. But when that temple is destroyed and the second one is built, all the way through to the Jesus' day, there is no record in scripture of the presence filling that second temple, even as it was made magnificent by Herod in the first century B.C. Where is the next time we see God's spirit descending? It's on Jesus himself, as he is standing in the river Jordan with his cousin to be baptized. And the spirit descends this time in the form of a dove, but we hear the voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so the idea of spirit is moving. All right? It's moving from that force out there to one that stands outside, the one that comes inside, and now it moves from a building to a person. And then when Jesus leaves, and he says, I need to leave so that the helper can come, we see at Pentecost that is descending now as the fire on each of the believers. And this is Paul's big idea. That we are the temple. Not the building temple. We are the temple. And we moved all the way to Revelation where the new Jerusalem is descending. And John sees no temple in it. And the voice comes out and says that my spirit is now tabernacled among all people. And so now we see that the spirit is within And, of course, the Spirit has always been within. Jesus' notion of kingdom was always within, among, in the midst of, because God's presence is within, among, and in the midst of. And so that hasn't changed, but our perception has changed through time. And this beautiful gift of the Scripture, all 66 books, has given us this sweep of us starting to understand more and more. And Jesus finally come and putting the pinnacle on it, this is what it means to be one with the Spirit. And so, as I finish those two, you all know Pat Boone, right? Everybody know Pat Boone? Pat Boone is part of our community, and, and though Shirley hasn't been able to travel for the last um, you know few months, actually pretty much all year, they stream every Sunday. Hope you're there, guys, because I'm going to talk about you right now. Uh, they stream on uh, on live. And so... The GPS Sunday, I got uh, some notes from Pat. <laughs> Ten pages of notes. Now, to be fair, he does write in the big, giant type, so I can even read it without my glasses. You know, but still, he went through this, and and he wanted to 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 try to put his ideas on paper as a reaction to what we were talking about. And I wanted to read a little bit of you uh, of what he said because I want to use what he did here as the basis of what we're going to talk about today because he had a great point. He says, love the session involving our spiritual GPS, but it didn't go far enough. See what I got to put up with? <laughs> it didn't go far enough identifying the only reliable GPS, the Holy Spirit, and not just being promised the Holy Spirit when one becomes a Christian as occurred on the day of Pentecost, but receiving Asking for and being filled with and inhabited by the very Spirit of God. As with a physical GPS, oh, then he says, it's a mistake to think that receiving Holy Spirit is automatic. You know? It doesn't come with a welcome pack, in other words, when you, when you join a church or you say the sinner's prayer or even when you get baptized. He's saying it's a mistake to think that that infilling, infilling is automatic. As with a physical GPS, just owning or having one is no real help. It must be grasped, Turned on, studied. The new owner must get familiar with it as a different type of guidance system. One that is much better educated, equipped, and reliable. Not just a product of human hunch or well-meaning guesswork. I thought that was pretty good. Because what we haven't done is talk about... Three questions should be in your mind right now. Well, The first question is, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? If you haven't received the Holy Spirit, that's probably what you want to know. How do I receive this? And the second, what does that even mean, receive the Holy Spirit? Some of you may not know what it means when we talk about such a thing. And the third question that occurred to me is, how do I know when I've got it? Because I'll tell you, you know, 25, 30 years ago, when I was first getting involved in an evangelical church, and, uh, and even before that, in the Catholic charismatic movement, I hadn't a clue what they were talking about. And people kept trying to get me baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we'd work and I'd try so hard and and it didn't seem like anything was happening. And so I didn't have a clear idea of this. These were my questions starting out and there may be some of yours as well. And so I think Pat kind of puts his finger on it. You know, what are these three questions? In Acts 8, there's a great story about Philip going to Samaria so he starts out and, and he was either in Jerusalem or Galilee and he goes to Samaria to preach the gospel there and he has great success. You know, people are, are, are being baptized in, in water and they're dedicating themselves to following Jesus and they're overjoyed and, and miracles are happening and so on and so forth. And as the, the leaders in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church hear about what's going on, they send Peter and John out there And Peter and John go out and they lay hands on the people and they pray with them. And the scripture tells us that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And there was such a notable difference in where they were before and where they were after this event that there was a man named Simon the Sorcerer who was someone who was beguiling all the people with all of his uh, uh, magic act and, and healings and things that he could do. And he had become a believer under Philip and he goes to Peter and says, He tries to offer him money. You know, can I pay you that you give me the authority that when I lay hands on people that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit? And of course, Peter rebukes him and, and so on and so forth. But it's that there was like two stages, two phases to this work. Philip goes out and gets the people baptized with water. That is their first phase. It's exterior it has to do with conformance. It has to do with dedicating yourself to a new lifestyle. But there's a second phase that's interior. It has to do with transformance. And this is what, Paul, what Pat is trying to get us to understand. What Jesus and the apostles are trying to point out to us. That there is this other process. There is this filling, this indwelling. To use the kind of the imagery that we were using before, to be baptized with water is to have the presence standing outside your tent, conversing with you, or guiding you through the wilderness. But the second phase is to have that presence come inside the tent, inside the temple, which Paul says is we ourselves. To have that presence come in, how do we move from the baptism of water? To the baptism of fire. Now God's presence is forever unchanged. It's within, it's among, it's in the midst of, and that doesn't change. What's changing is our awareness of it. Our ability to actually connect with, be present to the presence that is always there. How does that happen? How do we move from this to that? In Luke 3, take a look. It's in your um, inserts. Starting at verse 7. This is uh, John the Baptist. Not our John the Baptist, but the other John the Baptist. And he is, he is doing his work out at the River Jordan. And so he, John, began to say to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Okay, now why would he say that to the people that are coming out to be baptized? It's interesting that that each of the Gospels gives us a little bit different amount of information and a different take sometimes on the same events. And Matthew, uh, Matthew at Matthew 3, is going to help us out here because who John was talking to was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two of the ruling sects, the the religious authorities, who were coming out with all of the rank-and-file people to be baptized. And obviously John doesn't think they're coming out for the right reasons. You know, you brood of vipers, he's saying to them. Okay, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you out here? What are you doing here? Right? Therefore, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, because I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, the Pharisees were all about law. They were about ritual. They were about ethnicity, ancestry. They were about the fact that they were the physical progeny of Abraham, and they were still looking at things that way. The promise came from God to Abraham that his ancestors were going to have this land, have this place among the nations. So by very virtue of them being physical descendants, they thought that this was theirs. They were entitled to this as long as they kept the law and they kept their ritual. And so right now we start to see the turn. We start to see John trying to tell them it's about something completely different. Your tree needs to bear fruit because ancestry means nothing. Law means nothing. Ritual means nothing unless there is this something else that's coming out of your life. And so the people are kind of flipped out by this. Hey, you're telling us that these people aren't going to make it? If they can't make it, what about me? And when the crowds were questioning him at verse 10 and they're saying, then what shall we do? What then shall we do? And John would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this is what John is trying to get, them across, get across to them. Just following rules, following law, just your ancestry is not enough. What then do you do? What's the next step that you take? Well, begin living in compassionate relationship. Take care of each other. Do the things that you know how to do for each other. Be that person that is a blessing in other people's life. Learn to love as God loves. Because this baptism means absolutely nothing without the repentance, without the turning of the corner, without something tangible happening in your life, without your tree bearing some kind of fruit. But, there's more coming. I'm baptizing with water. Someone is going to come to baptize with spirit and fire. And so, life, we've talked about, has two halves. The first half of life is exterior. It's about acquisition. It's about building foundations. The second half of life is interior. It's about stepping away from all of the exterior things that we thought were so important and digging deep into meaning and purpose. Life has that shape to it. It turns out our spiritual lives have the same shape. There's a first half and a second half. They could be contingent with, or at the same time as, the first and second half of life, but not always. Sometimes these things work in a series. We see people entering the first half, just like Philip with the Samaritans. And then we see the second half taking place. Now, take a look at Acts uh I'm in the right place here, one, four to eight. This is the resurrected Jesus speaking, gathering them together. This is after his resurrection, and he's been meeting with people for the forty-day period that he was. Before his ascension, gathering them together, his followers, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it this time? Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs, which the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Take a look at that line right there. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? His followers, even now, still didn't get it. His followers, even now, speaking to the resurrected Lord, they watched him die, they watched him be crucified. And they're talking to him again. And even now, they're still looking for the military overthrow of the Romans. They're still looking for the restoration of the political sovereignty of their nation. And in the back of their minds, they're still wondering about seating arrangements. Where do they get to sit in the royal court? Which was their arguments all along up to this point. They still don't get it. They still don't understand. It's amazing when you think about that. With everything that they saw. How can they still not see? That's what we need to take a look at. Now, Pat gave me three passages in Scripture that he said was pointing to this spiritual transformation, this infilling. And the first one is Isaiah prophesying a time when people will hear from God directly. And we need to take a look at that. Take a look at Isaiah 30, verse 20 and 21. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Wherever you turn, to the right or to the left. Okay. Now, given the questions that we're asking, does this help? (laughs) didn't help me much. But here's the thing about Scripture. Taking isolated verses out of context doesn't teach much, doesn't help us much, and makes us, you know, real vulnerable to missing the interpretation. Everything is about context. We need some backstory here. What's going on? Why is Isaiah saying this at all? What's happening? In the 8th century, the Assyrians were the ascendant empire in the Middle East, all the way from what is now Iran, to to Israel, that whole area. It was the Assyrians that were the great power. And either they went and they conquered their neighboring nations or they turned them into vassal states. If they were threatening them, if they massed their, their armies at the border and the king of the other country decided to go ahead and just pay them tribute and pay them taxes, then they would not destroy the country, but they would just continue to suck the funds out of it. And they became vassal states. And so this was Assyria's strategy throughout the region. And it worked. It worked in Israel. It worked in Judah. The king there, Ahaz, was really enamored with uh, Babylonian authority and pomp and circumstance and their religion. And so he gladly became a vassal king to Sargon. In 722, Sargon came and he destroyed the northern territory, the northern kingdoms. Samaria, the capital of Samaria and and the ten tribes, 28,000 were carted off into Assyria. And so that was great motivation for Ahaz in Judah in the southern kingdom to go ahead and pay these tributes. When Ahaz is succeeded by his son Hezekiah, he turns out to be a reformer. He wants to turn everything back to the way it was before. And so he rebels against now Sennacherib, who was the successor to Sargon. These names, right? Sargon. Sennacherib. Um, He rebels against him. He stops paying the tribute. He stops paying the taxes. And so Sennacherib marches south into the northern territories of of Judea and starts to destroy all of those outlying towns. And as he comes to hit the border of Jerusalem, uh, the city itself, Hezekiah makes a pact with Egypt. Egypt was also on the list of countries that were going to be taken over by Assyria. And so they make a a mutual defense pact. Is this sounding familiar? I mean, it could be taken right out of the, the headlines today. You know, we think about the ancients as being so primitive. But when you hear all that's going on between the nations and politically, it's the same thing. And it was always thus So between 722 and 701, when Sennacherib marches on Jerusalem, this is where Isaiah and Micah and Jonah are all prophesying in that period between the destruction of the northern kingdoms and the march on the southern kingdoms. And Isaiah in particular is looking at this sellout as he sees it by Hezekiah to form this pact with Egypt and to try to continue to work by all these machinations and all of these treaties and strategy and all this political wrangling to try to survive when they're supposed to be just looking at God. This is supposed to have been a theocracy. God is their strength. And the kings of Judea and of the northern kingdoms were continually trying to do this on their own power. So this is the backstory to Isaiah's passage here. But I want to read you a little more expanded portion of this because this is where it's there's going to be some pointers for us about how we go about bringing this presence home. Isaiah 30 at verse 1 Woe to the rebellious children declares the Lord who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For their princes are at Sion, and their ambassadors arrive at Hanas. And this is interesting. Their princes are at at, uh, Zoan, I'm sorry, not Sion, Zoan, which is the city Tanis, which you might remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where they actually found the Lost Ark. It's interesting. That, that was probably the city that Moses brought the plagues to because it was a residence of Pharaoh. So what he's saying is the princes of Egypt, who you're trying to connect with, are down there at, at Zoan, at Tanis, far, far away. And their ambassadors arrive at Hanas. Hanas was supposed to be a city by the uh, ancient expositors of the Bible, but they can't find it archaeologically anywhere. Really interesting. There is several scholars who think that Hanas is actually a form of the Hebrew word hanam, which means in vain, which means nothing. How does that change the meaning? Their princes are at Soan, way far away, doing their own thing, and their ambassadors arrive at nothing. (laughs) Their ambassadors work in vain. Where do you think you're going to get any sustenance here? Where do you think there's any survival here? is what Isaiah is trying to tell them. At verse 8, Now go, write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that they may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, You must not see visions. And to the prophets, You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. you got to love the poetry of Isaiah. He sees Israel's fall like the breaking of a clay jar. There's not a piece big enough that you could even scoop water from a cistern to drink or to scoop a, a, a hot coal from the fire to start a fire someplace else. It's just... Amazing He's telling him, "Look, you're heading off a cliff here. You've got to change directions. If you keep in this direction, this is what's going to happen. All right? So repent, turn. How? And verse 15, "For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, "In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. I think that should be on every one of our refrigerators. In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Reminiscent of Paul, right? When I'm weak, I am strong. But you were not willing. And you said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. We will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand of you will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop as a signal on a hill. Okay, now he's going to give the promise at verse 18. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabit Jerusalem. You will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. If we trust in the promise, he's saying there's going to be a breakthrough. And what is that breakthrough? At verse 20, Although although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. But your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And that passage to me is so reminiscent of Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah in the cave? He just came off this incredible victory at Mount Carmel where 450 of the prophets of Baal couldn't bring fire down to consume the offering. And he just has one simple prayer to God and it consumes not only the offering, but the stones and the water that was in the moat around it and all this stuff. But as soon as Jezebel, the queen, puts a contract out on his life, He flees into the wilderness and he finds himself in a cave, just hunkering down, you know, shivering at the back of the cave. And the Lord says, what are you doing, Elijah? Where are you? And he says, well, you know, they've killed all the prophets of Israel and now they want my life to take it away as well. And then there's this wonderful image of this wind that tears through the mountain, breaking stones, But the Lord is not in the mountain. And then an earthquake rumbles through, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then a fire comes across, but the Lord is not in the fire. And then there's a sound of just a gentle blowing, kind of like a whisper at the back of the neck. And Elijah just puts his mantle over his head and goes out to meet his Lord. See, what both passages, both prophets, are trying to get across to us is that God... The Lord is not in the noise, not in the machinations, not in all the scheming, not in all the political intrigue, not in all of that mind candy, all that glittery stuff that that gets us all excited and pulls us along into all these areas. When we finally stop, when we finally get quiet, when we finally rest, we find our salvation when we finally let go of trying to control everything by our own power, something changes. We can see things more clearly. We can see what's really going on. Stop the scheming. Stop stoking the fear that the scheming comes from. Become quiet. Return to a sense of dependence, a sense of vulnerability again, a sense of right relationship then the soft word behind your ears can actually be heard. The direction of the Lord can actually take us someplace we really want to go. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever worked so hard at something it was just running, wearing a rut in your brain. You're thinking about it, thinking about it, planning for it. You had this thing that you were imagining, this outcome that you wanted so badly, and you're working and working, and no matter what you do, it's just like banging your head against a wall. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I sure have. And then it's almost like the moment you finally give up and let go, and just, and then it like happens. You know, how many, how many people, I know so many people, several people at least, that have tried so hard to get pregnant. You know, they're working, they're working, they're doing the thing and checking the this and the charts and the temperature or they're doing in vitro fertilization, all this kind of stuff. And then when they finally just give up, there they are. Kind of happened to Marion and me, you know, we knew there was supposed to be another kid. And for four years we were trying and it's like, OK, guess guess we heard wrong. And then all of a sudden there's Brennan. You know, a little, little light of our lives, you know. But this is a pattern. You feel it in your lives. You see. You have that conversation that you plan over and over again. And you work on it, you work on it. And of course, it never goes the way that you planned. If you would just show up and listen, be quiet. It's about trusting the process. It's about trusting the underlying reality in an uncertain world, in an uncertain life, that changes everything. Pat wrote in his notes to me that it's not about human wisdom, it's not about good intentions, it's not about prayer and fasting, it's not about becoming our best selves, it's not even about believing in Jesus or loving Him the best that we know how. But it's about inviting a person in, filling this temple, and to paraphrase Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, he sa- he tells his his followers, I'm physically getting out of your way. I'm going to get out of your way, physically, so that the helper can come. So that the Spirit can come and fill you up. Right now, I'm part of your machinations. I'm part of your scheming. I'm part of your hope that you're going to be able to sit at my right hand or left hand at the royal court when we throw out the romans and reestablish the kingdom of of israel but if i get out of the way something different is going to happen we need to follow jesus direction here we need to follow jesus model here always but specifically here we need to get out of the way get out of our own way we need to get out of control and that is the key word Everything that we try to do to control the constant illusion of control that we maintain in our lives is what blocks the awareness of the Spirit that is already here. Keeps us from being able to know that we know that we know that the power is already within. And it's not that we really invite the Spirit in, obviously forever and already there, right? But that awareness, that trust, is what is missing. The second passage that Pat talked about was here at Matthew seven, eleven, And there it is. If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And now if you read that same passage in Luke 11, it's the Holy Spirit. If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the key there is those who ask. And isn't it interesting that Matthew talks about good things and Luke talks about the Holy Spirit? Because what's better than the Holy Spirit? Those are the good things. The two connect. But Luke puts a, a finer point on it for our purposes. Those who ask will receive the Holy Spirit by virtue of their asking, right? How do you ask? Is there some formula to it? How are we going to do that? Well, I'll tell you, like I alluded to earlier, 25 years ago, when I was first coming into evangelical Christianity, everybody wanted to get me baptized in the Spirit. You know? I was there... I had said the sinner's prayer, you know, I was baptized with water, but now they wanted this. And it was a charismatic church. And so do you speak in tongues? No. OK, well, we've got to pray for you, brother. And they would sit me down literally in a chair and they would all lay hands on me and they would pray that I would get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And of course, I didn't know what the heck was going on. And I was just trying to grunt this thing out. And maybe I don't know. You know, I was praying for an. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, praying for an infilling of the Holy Spirit, pretty much the same way I prayed for a base hit when I was playing Little League. You know, it was that kind of praying. It was just, give me, please, please, please give me. And of course, it didn't work. And it frustrated them, and it made me feel like a second class citizen because no matter what I did, nothing seemed to change. Here's where context comes back in to this particular verse. Most of Jesus' ministry is about the verbal giving way to the nonverbal, about the intellectual giving way to the experiential, about moving from a set belief system or rituals of purity and cleansing to relational experience in everyday life. And so, how are we supposed to understand this? Asking with words, of course, is beautiful. Asking with words takes us to that place of vulnerability again, that place of humility, that place of dependence on our God. But just asking is not going to be any more effective without that internal transformation in the same way that baptism is not effective without it. Asking without words is absolutely essential. How does that work? I want to read you more of Matthew 7. Where this verse comes from. And see what Jesus is doing here. Right at Matthew 7, 1. If you can get it up there so they can follow along, Brandon, that would be great. Right at the beginning of Matthew 7, this is the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about control again. What are we doing when we judge? What are we doing when we judge circumstances? We judge groups. We judge institutions. We judge each other. We're holding on to a standard in our head that we believe that we are following, that they are not. We create this us and them situation. But what we're doing is giving ourselves the illusion of some kind of control. I can manage this. I can control this. And I'm going to tell you why you aren't doing that. Jesus says, don't judge. We're talking about here, how do you ask for the Holy Spirit? Don't judge. Let go of that type of control. At verse 3, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see how this is an illustration of the do not judge? Again, it's about control. If I can control others, if they agree with me, then I feel better about what it is that I say I believe, that I believe is my salvation. Verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is more about persuasion. This is more about trying to get people to agree with you. Bring them into the fold, to bolster the walls of your own fortress, to try to again control the scary, uncertain circumstances of life. Don't do it. Let it go. Get out of control. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds And to him who knocks it will be open. Just like in Isaiah, this is the promise. There was you're heading off a cliff, don't do this, or you're gonna go off the cliff. But here's a promise that the Lord makes Ask and you'll receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or he asks for a fish and he will give him a snake. If you then being evil, that is being imperfect, that is still being driven by fear, by obsessive compulsive drives. If you who are like basically humanity (laughs) know how to give good gifts to your children, you're not going to give them a stone when they ask for a loaf of bread, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? But if you don't let go, of that imagined control that you're hanging on to in life. Skip to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When you think about it, religion can be the ultimate form of control. Can't it? You're having a debate, argument, discussion with someone. As soon as they say, God told me, it's over. Right? How do you appeal to a greater authority than that? How do you get around that one? Religion becomes the ultimate form of control. It is the logical juggernaut that kind of cuts through everything. Are we willing to let go of that? Do we think because we prophesied, do we think because we've, we've built 24-hour cable Christian satellite networks, do we think that is going to be what we are going to hang on in terms of salvation, in terms of acceptance? Those are the scheming machinations. Those are the things that are keeping us and blocking us from what Jesus is really talking about here. All of this is about letting go of control, letting go of assumed power. The real asking here is clearing a space interiorly, planting the seeds of trust that are then also going to be spoken verbally. But this is where it really rests if we want to move into that second phase, move into the second baptism. And the third passage that uh, Pat gave is Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Skip to verse 12. And they all continued in an amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. For it's only the third hour of the day, that'd be about 9 a.m. The followers look drunk to people from the outside looking in. They're out of control. They're out of control. And they're speaking these languages. What the heck was going on? They had finally gotten out of their own way. They weren't worried anymore about when the kingdom was going to come, when the armies would march and throw out the Romans. They weren't worried anymore about the seating arrangements of where they were going to sit in the royal court. They weren't afraid anymore. They didn't need to be afraid anymore because they had broken through into the trust. They had let go of all the stuff that was blocking the awareness of this indwelling presence that is always there. Where could it be anywhere else? If God is everywhere. But they had broken through. They were no longer afraid. Everything changed from that point on. Perfect love had finally filled the temple of their lives and displaced the fear, which is the only thing that ever can. The spirit of God is a spirit of perfect absolute Unconditional love. And when that enters, the fear is cast out. The fear is displaced. Everything changes. Gifts can flow. Tongues can flow. So is speaking in tongues the emblem of being born again in the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit? No, no, not at all. It's a beautiful example of out of control speech. Because that's what tongues is. Tongues is getting your head completely out of the way and just letting what flows, flows. It's direct spirit-to-spirit communication through the medium of your speech with you completely out of the way. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not a prerequisite, and not everybody does it. It doesn't matter. But your life will be characterized. Your life will be changed. It will move in what seems to be out of control ways because you won't have to be in control. You can just put one foot in front of the other and move and look to others like you have this great clarity, like you have insider information. But you know that you don't see any further than anybody else. But you trust that the ground will meet each footfall. As you move forward, this is what Jesus is talking about. And so, those three questions can we answer them a little bit better now? How do we receive the Spirit? Well, we ask. We have to vulnerably ask. We have to ask with humility and a sense of dependence. We have to ask in such a way that we know that we are getting a gift that we could never give ourselves. This isn't something we can work out somehow. And so we're not just asking verbally, but we're asking with our entire lives and everything that we do and the stance we take. The interior attitude with which we approach each relationship, each moment, this active return to vulnerability and humility. Look at Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, but you just can't say it any better than this. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Had to put it in the King James because it just sounds so good. Put that one on your refrigerator next to Isaiah. How can you say it any better than that? This is what the spirit of baptism in the spirit comes from. This asking comes from that stance The second question, what does the spirit of baptism even mean or spirit baptism even mean? It means that we're one with the Father now. As Paul said in Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ, the Spirit lives in me. Jesus said that I do nothing of my own initiative, but only what I see the Father doing, only what the Father does through me. To be baptized in the Spirit is to be so one with God's presence, God's will, His deepest desire and delight and pleasure, that you just naturally flow that way. And the third question, how do I know if I have the indwelling of the Spirit? How do I know if I have the baptism of the Spirit? Again, because I speak in tongues? No, it's not that. Although that could be a clue. It's a sense of moving from restriction, from obligation, from obedience to freedom. I love the way James puts it. He talks about the law of liberty. What an oxymoron is that? Law of liberty? What's he talking Law is restriction. Law is oppression. Law is keeping me from doing the things that I really want to do on pain of some sort of punishment. Law of liberty? What's going on? When we have made this change when there's this inward transformation, when I and the Father are really one, then everything that I do that the Father is asking of me is suddenly a liberation. It's not a restriction. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Not bad. Not bad. Everything changes with the way that we approach life when this happens. And I want to return to Pat one more time here because he closed with something really cool. He writes, how does God work in you? I myself, who had been a baptized Christian for many years, wasn't sure I wanted the baptism in the Holy Spirit. To turn my life completely over to one who would live intimately in me, to will and act according to his good purpose? I thought I'd be more comfortable working out my own salvation, making my own choices about what to do, serving him pretty much on my own terms. I'm sure that I share that reserve with a lot of lifelong Christians who know we've messed up along the way and still really want to do things that we suspect are not pleasing to God, but hope He'll forgive us. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Not to feel able to do just what you want to do your own way and hope that God's not keeping score. But the happy surprise for me when I did seek and receive the promised baptism and infilling of the Spirit, was that God, in the presence of the Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit, did indeed work in me to both will and act according to his purpose. He changed my want-to's. He's got a great line about another pastor who said, Hey, I drink and smoke as much as I want to. God has just changed my want-to's. He changed my want-tos and prompted desire and happiness in doing what he wanted for me all along. With no work or effort on my part, I felt more love for him and his word and really was joyous about doing some things that wouldn't have much appealed to me before. I'm still amazed at how God's indwelling spirit changed me and is still working in me. Two phases of the spiritual life. To get on the path, to begin the process of conforming, of repentance, moving in new directions, living more relationally, but still obeying ultimately. And then a breakthrough to a second phase, a second half, where everything transforms inside, where the presence of God is no longer standing outside the tent, but comes in and changes our very DNA So that the things that seemed like restriction are now just everything to us. How do we get this spirit? Ask. But ask with your whole life and not just with your words. Let's pray. Father, we want this indwelling. We want this baptism of fire and spirit. We want this oneness. We want this deeper connection with you that changes all the colors and changes nature of our relationships, changes the taste of food, changes everything from the inside out. We can't even know what the change is before we just let ourselves fall, let ourselves go, move into it. Help us to do that. Help us to start with our words to ask. We ask you for this infilling, Lord. But help us to live the petition in our lives to let go of everything that is blocking us from the presence that is already there within. Father, thank you for loving us as much as you do to give us these gifts with no prerequisite. It's amazing, and it's hard for us to believe. Help us to begin to believe more and more that we can take the first steps toward trust. We love you, Lord. We can only do that because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.